Robin, will you read Psalm 96, please? Please join me in reading God's holy word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Stay, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar, sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. He has come, for, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Well, good morning, EBC. It's a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning. And I do want to give you just a quick heads up. Uh, I will be in Florida uh, this week visiting with my grandfather for a few days. Uh, I will be here next Sunday, but because of the trip, I will not be preaching. Uh, and if you are new here and are not familiar, uh, this church body is led by a group of elders or pastors, uh, that being a synonymous title in the scripture, and we total seven of us. Uh, this church has seven pastors. We have the privilege of hearing from one of them next Sunday, uh, Pastor Paul Morgan. And he will be continuing on in our Who is God series. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to that. And I hope to see you here next Sunday as I get to sit with you and hear the word of God preached. Uh, but this morning, uh, it is my privilege to continue in our study of the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity, which we began last week. And so by way of quick review, as part of this Who is God series, uh, last week we began to look at the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the truth that the scriptures teach us that God is one in being, but three persons. And I talked a little bit about the high level of priority that we should give this doctrine, and I showed you some ways in which some modern groups in our day dogmatically deny this doctrine and what our response should be to that. But the main goal of this two-part message is to lay out the foundation of why we believe this doctrine to be a true representation of God's revelation. And so we looked at our text, and I began to show you the scriptural argument for this doctrine. 
And I believe there are three primary arguments that lead us to this truth. And so we saw in our text in Matthew 28, number one, as referred to in the Godhead, we saw that there are three distinct persons. And number two, these three distinct persons are divine. And within that one, I just quickly mentioned how the Father is clearly identified as God in the Scriptures. And we ended our time last week considering the fact that the Scriptures also identify Jesus as being divine, as being God, while at the same time seeing that there is a distinction between Him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so we reject modalism, the heresy which rightly states that there is only one God, but incorrectly says that that one God appears in three different modes at different times. And we saw how that just doesn't even make sense because we see very clear distinctions in the persons of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we even have some occasions where all three are interacting in the same scene. And so already we are starting to see that we have three different persons and all three are considered to be divine, right? They are co-equal and co-eternal. And this morning we will also see that there is only one God and thus the doctrine of the Trinity is true. But additionally, I want to take a second and thank everyone that reached out after the service or during the week with your questions. Uh, there were actually a few, and I want you to know that I really do appreciate and welcome your questions. That is what I am here for. Uh, yes, this time of preaching is a monologue, right? But this is not theater, right? Throughout my week, I devote myself to my studies and for the preparation of this message because I want you to be fed. And equipped, I do this for you. And I am feeding you the word of God, which is deeper and richer than the deepest depths of the deepest ocean. So don't ever be ashamed to come to me or to any of your pastors with your questions. Right? We are not burdened by them. We long for them, actually. We welcome them. Just be prepared for long answers, because I can certainly do that. <clears throat> but again, I, I want you to understand, I want you to learn, because by learning and understanding, you grow in your faith. You grow in maturity. You grow in your resoluteness, in your trust of God. And that's what I'm here for. I am here for you. So please. Don't ever be ashamed. So turn back in your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 28. And that's page 992 in your pew Bible. And if you're a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to keep that pew Bible as our gift to you. There are also some welcome notepads near the entrance that you can take. And there's an information card in there that you can fill out and slip into the offering box. We would love the opportunity to reach out and follow up with you. Matthew 28, and I want to read again from verses 16 through 20, but only focus on the same small portion within those verses as we did last week. So let's begin by reading our text, starting in verse 
16, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word, which he has spoken to us here through the pen of the Apostle Matthew, reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. And Father, what a promise that is that our Lord Jesus Christ gave to the disciples. A promise that is ours to this day, that He is with us always. And Father, this truth can only be true if the Trinity is true, if this doctrine is true. And so, Father, we thank you for this revelation of who you are one God, one in being, three. And persons. And Father, we confess that our minds have a hard time comprehending. But Lord, would you help us by faith and by seeing the truth clearly written out in your word? Lord, to hold to these truths, these truths in our conscience, bound by them because of the scriptures. And so, Father, would you help us to know your word? Would you write your word in our hearts? And, Father, would you help the preaching this morning through the power of your spirit? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned a quote to you from Tertullian, the early church father in the 200s who was defending the Trinity against the heretic Praxis. And Tertullian made the statement that showed that the Trinity, the word that you will not find in the Scriptures, was a doctrine that is thoroughly biblical and is of the faith and traced all the way back to the apostles and Christ himself. In church history, we see the development of certain doctrines as time goes by. But the develop, but but the development of these doctrines is by no means evidence against their biblical origin. Uh, rather, as the years progressed in the life of the church, certain questions, certain heresies, certain theological battles naturally arose in the progression of time, which caused the searching out of the scriptures in greater depths, which in turn led to more thoroughly developed, proclaimed, confessed doctrine. And that's the blessing, the only blessing of heresies. They force us to better nail down that which we believe based on the scriptures. And that was the case with the Trinity. We see a progression of the development of these truths in early church history. But they are clearly biblical. But we also see in the scriptures that God reveals truth progressively by degrees, gradually. And so there are many 
foreshadows and prophecies of the Christ in the Old Testament, but the New Testament more fully reveals those truths. But we even see where God himself tells us that he reveals truths gradually as he sees fit. And so, for example, if you look at Exodus chapter 6, in verses 2 to 3, we read, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh, I did not, my, I did not make myself known to them. And so there God is saying that to Moses, he's telling, he's telling Moses, I am Yahweh. But I did not make myself known to them by that name, to Abraham. But the thing is that Abraham did know the name Yahweh. And so what God is telling us there is that he was now revealing more to Moses and the people of Israel than he had even revealed to their father Abraham. And that is what Jesus does with the disciples. Though there were already shadows of this doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, such as the plural name of the Hebrew word for God and the plural language that we see in creation when God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image. And then we read in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, meaning God was not speaking to angels or the host of heaven when he used that plural language, right? It was Trinitarian language. It was Trinitarian dialogue. And so even though these shadows existed, Jesus reveals the truths of the Trinity to his disciples in greater degree. In the wisdom of God, that is how he has chosen to gradually reveal certain truths about himself by degrees and at different times. And along those lines, here's another interesting fact and a very encouraging one. Have you ever wondered why the doctrine of the Trinity is never explicitly taught in the Scriptures? I mean, we began to see last week how implicitly it is clearly taught. But why wasn't it explicitly taught? Right? How come the Apostle Paul didn't dedicate a few chapters to telling us explicitly that there is one God, but three persons who are co-eternal and co-existing, and that one being of God? I think the answer to that question is very simple and an encouraging one. And it is because the doctrine of the Trinity was already the commonly held belief of all Christians by the time that the apostles were writing these letters. Early Christians, beginning with the apostles, were experiential Trinitarians. Meaning they didn't just come to understand the doctrine, they witnessed it. They lived it. As Christians, they were Trinitarians through and through. Do you remember the benediction I used to close out the service last week? <laughs> well, she obviously wasn't paying attention. I believe that was my daughter, by the way. <clears throat> it was 2 Corinthians 13, 14, where we read the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you hear how Trinitarian that passage is? And why does Paul not explain what he means by that in that Trinitarian formula? Because there's no need. His audience already fully 
and clearly subscribe to the understanding of this doctrine. That's why you don't see any formal teaching of it. It was hardly disputed. It was clear. And so there was no need to address it. And so the late theologian B.B. Warfield notes, quote, The whole book is Trinitarian to the core. All its teaching is built on the assumption of the Trinity, and its allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. Close quote. But as time went on, heresies sprung up, like monarchianism, Sabellianism, patripassionism, adoptionism, modalism, Arianism, subordinationism, docetism, etc. And those are all early heresies that the church Catholic had to contend against. Catholic as in universal, the universal church, not the Roman Catholic church, which did not exist in the early centuries of the true church. And all those heresies I just mentioned directly impact the doctrine of the Trinity. So there are several. And so, as these battles were fought, confessions or creeds were drafted and adopted. And by the end of the 6th century, you have fully worked out theologies and creeds, such as the Athanasian Creed, which I want you to listen to really quickly. And again, this was written over 1,400 years ago. And listen to how precise it is regarding the Trinity. Quote, We worship one God in Trinity, in trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, one of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the, by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. And again, that's just universal church and not Roman Catholic church. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but receding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is a four nor after another, none is greater or less than the other, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Now, several reasons why I just 
read that creed to you. But number one, it's awesome. I mean, isn't it exciting to see how ancient our confession is? And that confession alone is older than five times the age of the birth of the United States as an independent nation. So it's just amazing. But secondly, uh, we ended our time last week looking at the deity of Christ. And a question came up, and the rule of thumb is usually if one person is asking it, then there are others. So I figured I would take a minute to address this. The question came up as to how Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. If He is God Himself, how can Jesus be begotten and be God? And this topic can get very complicated. And so again, if you have questions, I'm happy to discuss more later. Time does not permit me to give you a full treatise on this one question, but I think we can say a few things here. Uh, he is begotten, I believe, we can say, in two ways. First of all, as it pertains to Jesus' incarnation, the Greek word for begotten, I believe, more rightly means one of a kind, one of a kind or unique. And so in his incarnation, Jesus is the unique Son of God in the sense that he is the firstborn of many brethren. Those who are Christians, those who are born again, are given the right to be called the children of God, but we are children of God by adoption and not by nature. And so it is in this sense, for example, that God tells Abraham in Genesis 22, uh, verse 2, to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Right? Isaac was not Abraham's only son. He had Ishmael as a son before he had Isaac. But Isaac was the unique son, the one of a kind son of Abraham, because God had determined to carry out his covenant through him. And so in the incarnation, Jesus is the one of a kind or only begotten son of God, while we are children of God by adoption. But secondly, here is where uh, throughout church history there have been some issues. And in fact, back in 2016, I was doing some deeper studies in this area because the debate at that point came to the forefront for some time. And the debate is regarding the eternal generation of the Son, or the eternal sonship or eternal subordination of the Son. And what it all means, and or what all that means, that, that was the debate. This is where we ask the question, is Jesus the begotten Son of God from eternity past? Or just when He came into the world? And if He is from eternity past, the Son, then what does that mean as it relates to the Trinity? So as to the first part of that question, I believe the answer is very clearly yes in the Scriptures. He is the Son from eternity past, before the Incarnation. And so the Nicene Creed from the 4th century reads, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, nomic trinity. Ontological trinity pertains to the essence of the trinity, the origin, or the ontological, speaking of origins, of beingness. And the economic trinity pertaining to the actions or works of the Trinity. 
meaning in terms of defining their personhood and distinction in roles in the carrying out of the plan of redemption, for example. And so again, the language of the Nicene Creed, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of lights, or God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of the substance, of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And so, a lot of complicated language and deep theology, and let me tell you, this merely scratches the surface of this stuff. It gets very complicated. But here's the important affirmation that we must make. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, was not made. He was not created. He does not derive His being from the Father in the sense that it would make Him less than or dependent of the Father for His existence. The second person of the Trinity is God. Eternally God. Co-equal with the Father and the Spirit of one substance with the Father and the Spirit. But distinct in personhood. And in roles in the carrying out of the plan of redemption. So He has been the Son for all eternity. But He was not birthed by the Father in any way. Was not created by the Father in any way. He is not dependent of the Father in His, in his being. Right? The Son is, as theologians of old have said in Greek, is autotheos. He is God in Himself. God of Himself. And so that's the affirmations that we should make as pertaining to Christ being begotten. <clears throat> but I also want to address just another question that came up this week, and <clears throat> that is, what about 1 John 5, 7? Uh, 1 John 5, 7, this is a, a different question. <clears throat> 1 John 5, 7 sounds like the scripture proof for the doctrine of the Trinity. But if you're looking at a more modern translation, you won't see how the King James in 1 John 5, 7 says, quote, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And the reason you won't see that in your, in your ESV, for example, is because that is a textual variant, and the evidence is overwhelming, in my opinion, <clears throat> that that sentence is a much later addition to the text. And so it does not belong in the Bible. It is not original to the words that the Apostle John himself penned in that letter. But that is not to say anything against the King James Version as a translation. It is a great translation. <clears throat> and if you would like to discuss that further, if that concerns you, right? if you're worried right now because you think that I'm starting to throw out verses out of the Bible, then please come talk to me. I'd be happy to explain this further. But bottom line, I do not believe that we should use the King James' reading of 1 John 5-7 to try to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. And we certainly don't need it. right? And I hope you're seeing how deeply embedded this truth is throughout the pages of Scripture. And so, so far we have seen that the Father is divine. The Son is divine. right? Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. And now just very quickly, let's consider the divinity 
of the Holy Spirit. You may recall the passage in Acts where Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, and God kills them for it. As Peter is confronting Ananias about his lying, this is what we read in Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so we see Peter here very clearly speaking of the person of the Holy Spirit. That is who Ananias and Sapphira lied to, the Holy Spirit. And again, remember that a person can be grieved and lied to, but a thing can't. And so the Spirit is a person. But here Peter is saying that they lied to the Holy Spirit, who he then equates as being God, right? Paul also equates the Holy Spirit as being God. In Acts 28, Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and he is teaching the leaders of the Jews in his home. And we read beginning in verse 23 of Acts chapter 28, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. And so Paul clearly identifies the Holy Spirit as being God, because He is quoting Isaiah 6, uh, where Isaiah said he heard the voice of God as saying those words to him. And Paul attributes it to the Holy Spirit. And so we have a number of passages that clearly identify the Holy Spirit as a person and clearly identify him as being Yahweh, as being Adonai, as being God himself. And many other passages that show that the Holy Spirit is uh, present at creation. He is omniscient, omnipresent, etc. He is God. And so what we have clearly seen is that there are clearly three persons in the Godhead. And they are all clearly divine. All three are distinct persons, but all are identified as being God, as being Yahweh. But lastly, the scriptures are emphatic that though there are three divine persons, there are not three gods, but one God. And so our last heading of this two-part message is unity and singularity. Unity and singularity. Look back at our main text, Matthew chapter 28, and verse 19. And again, we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The name. Not the names, plural, but singular name. And so there are three distinct persons, but these persons rightly bear the singular name. 
There is but one God. And we as Trinitarians are monotheists. We believe in only one God. And again, the scriptures are clear on that. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, Paul states, There is one God. James affirms this doctrine as being true in James 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. And Jesus himself affirms this truth. When he's asked what the greatest commandment is, and he replies by proclaiming the Shema. In Mark 12, verse 29 and 30, Jesus answered them. The most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so Jesus affirms monotheism. But, I want, but what I want you to note in reference to our Trinitarian text here in Matthew is that there's also a great level of weight added to the fact that you see this equality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as being part of the singular name. You see, to these Jews, the Jewish disciples there, the, the phraseology of the name was almost akin to saying God. And in the Old Testament, we see the same thing. Isaiah 30, verse 27. The name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and His tongue is like a devouring fire. So who's burning with anger with lips full of fury there in Isaiah? The name. Isaiah 59, 19. So they shall fear the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 and 59. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring you, bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. So there is a weight to the words that Jesus uses here that would have made it very clear in the minds of his listeners. And as experiential Trinitarians, this meant everything. Right? The name put all three of them in the one being of God. And so this name should mean everything to us as well today. And by that, I mean that our entirety of our faith stands or falls on this doctrine being true. Beloved, we were baptized into the name, the singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because it was the work of the triune God that made salvation for sinners possible. This is why this doctrine is so important. Because without it, the whole of redemption falls apart into logical fallacies. And it is important for us to know that what the scriptures teach about the plan of redemption is that it was the Father who chose us before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Him. 
that it was the Son who paid for it with His own blood, and, and that it was the Spirit who applied it and brings us to newness of life. We are saved because of the Father, by the Son, and through the Spirit. Redemption is Trinitarian. And there is no other way. No one can get to the Father but through Christ and by the Spirit. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. This is a singular name. An awesome name. A powerful name. A fearful name. A holy name. It is a royal name. It is a family name into which we were baptized. A Trinitarian yet singular name of God. And we are blessed beyond Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Moses in having the privilege of knowing God in this way on this side of eternity. We are a Trinitarian monotheist because that is how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And so, beloved, do you see that? Do you see that you owe your salvation to a Trinitarian God? Do you see the love with which you are lavished with? John 17, 26, Jesus says, speaking of the Father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christian, you are loved with an eternal love. You are loved with an everlasting love. A love that prior to creation flowed in perfect harmony in the relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no greater love. There is no better love. There is no more caring love than the love that this Trinitarian God has for you. And to those who might be here this morning who have not known of this love, who have not known this Trinitarian God of the world, if you repent and believe the gospel, if you Repent of your sins. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Bow your knee to this Trinitarian King in full surrender. Come to newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Son and for the Father to the glory of God. And so you see, beloved, the scriptures are clear. There are three distinct persons in the Godhead who are divine and equally and co-eternally God. And there is only one God. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is true. And as Christians, we confess the unity and Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to worship you 
spirit and in truth. Father, may the rest of our service this morning be honoring and glorifying to you. And we thank you, Lord, that we have been baptized into this awesome name. The Trinitarian God of the world. In Jesus' name. Another old hymn, also encouraging.